Good afternoon. Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. We're good. Yeah, good. Uh, we, all co- we welcome all visitors who are joining us in worship this afternoon, as well as everybody who's joining us online. And we pray that as we worship the Lord together, He would be praised by our worship. Council has the following announcements: Sean and Brenda Rapp and their five baptized children. I've requested an attestation for the Christ Reformed Church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. The New Year's Day service will begin at 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, and the offering on that day will be collected for word and deed. And the offerings today will be collected for the work of the deacons in this congregation and in the community. And again this afternoon, we welcome Pastor Randall Vischer, the pastor of the Refuge Canadian Reformed Church in Langley. Good afternoon, everyone. Our God calls us to worship him once again, this time with the words of Psalm 81. It says, sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. If you're able, please rise. Beloved, in whom is our help? Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. From the seven spirits who are before his throne. and From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Amen. Let us now sing to God from Psalm 40, stanza 4.
our God. Our Father, who reigns in heaven above, we come before you once again to bring you our worship, to bring you our praise. And we ask that during this worship service, you would work within us, that you might be at the center of our thoughts, the center of our focus and attention. We pray, Father, that this time that we have as a congregation would be pleasing to you because it's a time in which we remember the amazing things that you have done and we celebrate and rejoice in them. There would also be a time of wonderful, refreshing, refreshment for us. As we are once again reminded of the incredible things that you have done to save us, to allow us to experience your great deliverance. We pray, Father, that you forgive us for all of our sins and our weaknesses, for all the ways in past days in which we have sinned against you and your holy majesty. We pray, Father, that you would help us to recognize the importance of living in a new way. To recognize that Jesus Christ has claimed us to be his own. That he is our Lord and Savior, God and King, who gives us new marching orders. He calls us now to, to live, demonstrating great love for you and great love for those around us. We pray, Father, you open our hearts and minds this afternoon in this service as we consider the the teaching about the true nature of your Son, your Son who is both righteous man and perfect, powerful God. Help us to see how Jesus is, is perfectly qualified to be our mediator, to be that figure who mediates between heavenly, all-powerful God, and us, as lowly adopted children. Guide us by the Holy Spirit. Help us to see the truths which you wish to reveal to us and the truths which you intend to have upon our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles that you might uh, read with me two passages from the New Testament this afternoon. We read these passages in connection with Lord's Day 6 of the Heidelberg Catechism where we talk about the two natures of Jesus Christ, how Jesus Christ is both God and man. We'll be reading first from the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 38. And then we'll turn as well to read from letter to the Galatians, from Galatians chapter 1. Let us read now the word of God as it comes to us in Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 31. We'll consider the things that Jesus Christ says here of himself. And he, that is Jesus, 
began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Thus far reading from the Gospel of Mark, we turn then to the letter to the Galatians. Once again, the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle not from men, through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia, returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. 
But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. What I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. It's our reading. Let's now sing to God once again. Let's sing Psalm 49, stanza 2. we sang, great riches cannot save us, nor can we save one another, merely being human beings. Instead, we need another one, a perfect Savior whom we have been given. We hear about him in Lord's Day 6, which we will be now reading together. Beloved, hear this summary of God's word. Why must he, that is the mediator and deliverer that we must seek, why must he be a true and righteous man? He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Why must he at the same time be true God? He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. 
But who is that mediator who is at the same time, or at the same time is true God and a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. From where do you know this? From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first proclaimed, revealed in paradise. Later he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he had it revealed through his only son. This we confess. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. People often have a more favorable opinion of Jesus than they do of Christianity as a whole. Now there are many people who don't believe in Jesus in a religious sense, but who will still say that they admire his teachings about the importance of loving others, or admire his willingness to to call people out for religious hypocrisy. It's not uncommon to run across people who who consider Jesus to have been a, a great human teacher. They just do not believe that he was the Son of God who died for the sins the world. In a series of radio broadcasts, the Christian author C.S. Lewis once addressed this matter. And I want to read to you what he said. It's a bit of a longer quote. It's the longest quote I've ever included in a sermon, to be honest, but bear with me. C.S. Lewis said this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may be, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. It's the end of his quote. C.S. Lewis's argument there, it's, it's sometimes described as the, the lunatic liar or lord argument regarding 
Jesus Christ. You might come across it sometimes in apologetic or evangelism material. Philosophers will sometimes debate the the logical merits of Lewis's argument, whether those were really the only three ways that someone could understand Jesus. I don't intend to, to get into the logic of Lewis's argument, but I do think Lewis there reminds us of something important. We need to consider how Jesus is presented to us in the Bible. If we want to know who Jesus is, we need to let him speak for himself and be willing to listen. And when we hear him speak about himself or hear others speak about him, it should be clear to us that Jesus is not being presented to us. And he did not present himself to us as merely being a great human teacher. How he presented himself and he was presented by others to us as a divine figure. Someone who is not just man, but God. This afternoon we shall see that Scripture presents Jesus to us as the perfect Savior who is both man and God. Let us see that Jesus was more than a great teacher by considering the words of Jesus and considering the words of Scripture as a whole. Now most people today don't really struggle with the idea that Jesus Christ was a man. In the Gospels, we can read about how he was born, he, he grew up, he, he speaks to other people, he, he prays to his Heavenly Father. He's a figure who, who gets hungry, who enjoys food and drink in the company of others. When he was crucified on a cross, he died. His body was stabbed, it bled. I see plenty of evidence that Jesus Christ was a, a human being like us. And curiously, it was his humanity, which earlier believers actually had a harder time accepting. Oh, people back in the, the time of the, the Roman Empire, they had hard time accepting that their Lord, their Savior, their God could also be a man. Look like a man, sure. Act like a man, okay. But actually be a human being. That was seen as crazy back then. They couldn't get past this idea of what kind of God would humiliate himself By becoming a a person, a dirty, stinky, lowly human being. What kind of deity would take on the human body with all of its weaknesses and frailties and disgustingness? The philosophy, the religion of the Greeks, the Romans, it made it hard for people to accept that Jesus could be a man. And so there were all sorts of heresies back in the day where people denied that Jesus was truly human. 
People known as, as docetists who said that Jesus only appeared to be a man, but that was really just an illusion. You had heresies, modalism, Apollinarianism, monophysitism. You can read about them if you like. All these different groups that denied the human nature of Christ. But today, you don't find too many people who who struggle with Christianity because it says that Jesus was a true and righteous man. They might not understand what exactly, you know, we're saying with that. They won't understand the, the full redemptive significance of, of answer 16 of the catechism where it says he must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Well, they don't necessarily get all that. But you probably won't find yourself in too many debates about the humanity of Jesus. People today saying, I accept that he was God, but it doesn't make sense for him to also be man. His divinity, the idea that Jesus is God, that is the more difficult idea today for most people to accept. People will struggle when we confess things in the catechism about Jesus must be true God so that by the power of this divine nature he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. That's a difficult idea for people to accept. We believe that Jesus had to be God because only God could bear God's wrath against our sin. Only a a divine figure can stand up to divine punishment and deliver others from that. The Old Testament, the psalmist declared, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities should notice sins, O Lord, who could stand? The New Testament's revealed, for God has done with the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. The Bible makes it clear in multiple ways that Jesus is God. He bears a a divine nature. John begins his gospel stating, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A few verses later he states, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Despite that thing, or despite that, there, there are scholars, including scholars who will say that they are Christians who claim that Jesus didn't claim to be the Son of God. Jesus was merely misunderstood. But let us consider the words which Jesus spoke. 
Consider as just one example what Jesus said in our reading from Mark 8. Verse 35, Jesus says, For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, the Gospels will save it. Those are not the words of a humble servant of the Lord. Jesus isn't saying, whoever loses his life for God's sake will save it. He's saying, if you die in my service, if you die while proclaiming the good news about my coming, you will be saved from eternal judgment. Prophets didn't speak that way. Rabbis didn't speak that way. The apostles wouldn't go on to speak that way. They didn't call for for personal loyalty. They called the people to be faithful to God. And if Jesus is merely a man, merely a human teacher, merely one more figure sent by God to talk about God, he had a blasphemous opinion of his own importance. Jesus goes on to say in Mark 8, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? If Jesus were merely a man, how could he speak of these things? How could he hint at the ability to save anyone's life? If a man can't give anything in return for his soul, how could Jesus, if he were merely a man, give anything for his own soul, let alone our souls? Now Jesus is saying that that personal allegiance to him is more valuable than any sacrifice, more valuable than any good work, more valuable than a a lifetime of obedience to the, the laws of God. He says, trust in me and you will be saved. Jesus goes still further in Mark 8. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is how Jesus presents himself to us. As one who will be the judge of all of mankind. As someone who will come again with the glory of God, the heavenly angels at his side. I tell you, unless he is God, those words are blasphemous and presumptuous. None of the prophets of the Old Testament spoke of themselves that way. Oh, those are the words of someone realizes that he is more than a man. Jesus speaks of himself as the person who will determine our eternal fates. He presents himself to us as a divine, godly figure. Not just here in Mark 8. In numerous other places in the Gospels as well. So why do some... So-called Christian scholars say Jesus never claimed to be God. How do they do it? 
They'll claim that the Gospels are not reliable. They'll claim the Gospel writers reimagined Jesus, made him divine. Except there's no proof of that. There's no evidence of conspiracy. There's no evidence of a false presentation of Jesus Christ. There's no clear reason why the followers of Jesus would would stake their very lives on the lie that they had made up. Why do some people say Jesus never claimed to be God? Well, it's because they do not want to accept that idea for themselves. People do not want it to be true because they realize if it is true, then Jesus has a claim on them. So people insist the Gospels have been twisted because they do not want to accept the reality that they need Jesus. That they ought to submit to His rule in their lives. That His will rather than their own wills ought to be done. Because it is hard for our sinful hearts to accept this reality. We are in need of a Savior who is greater than ourselves. It is hard to accept that, beloved. Indeed, it takes a miraculous intervention of God on our behalf for us to accept that for ourselves. It takes a radical spiritual renewal worked in us by the Holy Spirit which allows us to say, thank you, God, for sending your Son. Thank you for Jesus Christ. The Bible backs up what we confess. Namely, that Jesus Christ is our perfect mediator at the same time as true God and a true and righteous man. That God the Father gave us our Lord Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and and sanctification and redemption. Those quoted words of, of 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. The evidence that Jesus needs to be both man and God, it's found throughout the Holy Gospel. We're told God had it proclaimed already by patriarchs and prophets foreshadowed in the the sacrifices, the ceremonies of the law. Finally, he had it proclaimed through his only son. Some will argue, well, all the scriptures are compromised. Argue that the the New Testament writings in particular are are not reliable. They merely represent the the made-up views of the early Christian community. In essence, the argument is that the disciples, they made it up. They conspired together to make their dead teacher more than he was to soothe their broken hearts. It's all a grand conspiracy because Peter, James, and John and the rest couldn't handle the fact that their teacher had died. And you know, perhaps that whole conspiracy angle would seem kind of convincing. If it weren't for that massive problem called the Apostle Paul. Because Paul wasn't one of Jesus' disciples. 
Paul had no motivation to buy into the idea that Jesus was the Christ, the promised Messiah. Paul had been instructed in the Jewish faith by one of the most prestigious teachers of the, the law of his day, the Pharisee Gamaliel. Paul had not only been given approval, or not only, sorry, Paul had not only given approval to the, the execution of the Christian Stephen, he himself had embarked upon a mission of, of persecuting the Christians. And he was on the rise because of it. He had nothing to gain from buying into this idea that Jesus was anything more than a dead man. But let us consider what Paul writes about Jesus and how he came to serve him. Here we might look at our readings from Galatians. Galatians, you need to understand, is universally considered to be the the first of Paul's letters. The fact that Paul wrote it is basically uncontested. Scholars will say, if Paul didn't write Galatians, then Paul didn't write anything. Based on the events in the letter, Galatians was most likely written between 48 and 49 AD. That's about 15 years after the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is how Paul begins his first letter. Introducing himself as Paul, an apostle. That is, Paul, someone who is sent. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Consider this. If Jesus was just a man, how can Paul say that he wasn't sent from men, nor through a man. If there's one thing Paul was adamant about, it's that Jesus Christ himself sent him, Paul, out to preach. You know, it's that God who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. See, Paul can say he was not from men nor through man because the one he was called through Jesus Christ is more than a man. Furthermore, consider how Paul greets the the Galatian believers. Saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. See, Paul, he puts Jesus on the same level as God the Father. He says Jesus is equally responsible for our salvation alongside the Father. And Paul's entire argument in the first chapter of Galatians is that his message about Jesus, his gospel, that good news he had been sent to spread, Now that didn't come from the other apostles. It wasn't because of the influence of human beings telling him, you really got to believe in Jesus. He says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, to those who were apostles before me. I went into Arabia, returned again to Damascus. 
Well, Paul's point there, what he's trying to say to the, the Galatians is that he wasn't a student of the apostles, of the, the twelve disciples of Jesus Christ we're most familiar with. He didn't learn what he knew about Christ from them. Yet when Paul and the apostles do get together, they are in agreement about the divine honor due to Jesus Christ. Paul wasn't a Christian because disciples told him he should be. Because Jesus Christ called him to follow. The resurrected Lord appeared to him while he was going on the road to Damascus. Now you can play the conspiracy game all day long. You can insist, well, Paul's also lying. The people who witnessed Jesus' earthly ministry, they, they just, they got together at some point with later converts like Paul and they all agreed to just completely twist everything Jesus said about himself to make Jesus more than he claimed to be. People can convince themselves of all sorts of things, especially when they're willing to accuse others of conspiracy. The thing is, if you don't want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will find reasons not to. You can scream at the top of your lungs, not enough evidence, not enough evidence. Four separate Gospels, eh. The witness of Paul, someone who wasn't even an apostle, eh, it's a conspiracy, I tell you. Made up, who knows when. The problem is our hearts. If we are dead set against submitting ourselves to the rule, the authority of Christ, and recognizing who he was, we can find reasons to doubt Reasons to claim that Jesus didn't actually say those things. That we can have our own take on Jesus, which which robs him of power and authority and simply makes him one more human teacher that we can ignore at our leisure. Or alternatively, we can ask God to open our eyes Open our hearts. Help us to recognize the truths He has so clearly revealed. Help us recognize that we are not only in need of a Savior, but we have been sent a Savior. Let us do that, beloved, if we struggle to trust in Jesus Christ as Lord. Let us do that, that we might experience a grace and a mercy that goes beyond all understanding. Let us boldly proclaim Jesus Christ as both God and man, as the perfect mediator sent for our benefit. Because in that, beloved, we discover what is most true. In that we discover how it is that we can be at peace with the God who made us. 
How we can learn to love all those around us. How we can be content even in the most difficult of situations. How we can rejoice even when our our earthly circumstances do not call for it. And we can love unlovable people. How we can be completely transformed from people who are focused on themselves and what they want and what works for them and instead become people who care for others. Love them. Live for them. Let us recognize what Jesus has said about himself. What the prophets and apostles said about him and the rest. The inspired words of God. So that we might begin to truly live. Live as we were meant to live. According to God's vision for us. Amen. If you're able, please rise that we might sing together hymn four. Oh, no. Yeah, rising. There's an asterisk in the liturgy, so.
As I mentioned, the early church struggled as well to accept Jesus Christ as both God and man. They had a little bit more trouble with his humanity than his divinity. They still had their issues and their debates. As part of settling these things, the church came together at the Council of Nicaea. And there they prepared a creed for all the Christian churches, the Nicaean Creed, which I'll be reading for you this time. You can find it on page 494 of the Book of Praise, if you wish to follow along there. This is what we have been taught to confess, beloved. We believe in one God Almighty, or one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven and became incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he arose according to the scriptures and descended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets. We believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. We're now going to have a Offering for the...
In our prayer this afternoon, we wish to remember in particular uh, Brother Sieb DeYoung, uh, who hopes to be restarting cancer treatments, uh, his third round later this week. We'll pray for him. Let's come before the Lord. Our Father, who is in heaven, we thank you for being willing to adopt us into your holy family. We thank you that you sent your beloved Son, your eternal Son, Jesus Christ, so that we might be your adopted children through faith in him. Adopted children who are able to have a relationship with you because we have our perfect mediator, Jesus Christ, now sitting at your right hand sitting there, his divine nature, sitting there in his human nature. We thank you, Father, for this most perfect mediator. This one who has gone between you and us. That we might be a family, despite our rebellion, our shortcomings, our sin. We thank you, Father, this Lord and Savior is both a true and righteous man and also all-powerful God. We pray that we might learn to trust in him more and more each day. We might learn how to to rejoice in Him more and more each day. To be people who don't merely look to you for salvation, but who also seek to live out that salvation in many ways. We pray, Father, that you would be with us in times of joy and times of sorrow times of blessing and times of hardship, no matter what we are going through, we might see the importance of of looking to you, trusting in you and praising you for what you have done. We pray that you would be with our brother Sieb de Young, that you would allow him to restart the chemo treatments this week. We pray that they might be successful We pray that soon, Father, you might give to him a a clean bill of health. You might allow him to to regain strength and energy. Be better able to, to serve you with his whole life. We pray for for others, Father who find themselves dealing with, with ongoing sickness and disease medical conditions that have robbed them of strength for for months and years. We pray for renewal for all your children. We pray, Father, that you might help each one of us to find more and more opportunities and ways in which to glorify you in this life with with ever gifts and talents and resources that you've given us. 
Let none of us think that we have nothing to, to offer in your service or the service of your kingdom. We pray, Father, that you would bless this congregation. That you would give to, if it's off, to its office bearers wisdom and discernment as they carry out their tasks and responsibility to the other members. We pray especially for Pastor Jeremy Segstrew. That you would bless him as he preaches, as he teaches. That in all he says and does, the good news concerning Jesus Christ might ring out. Give him the strength and energy he needs day by day to shepherd and pastor this flock. Bless the elders as well. They seek to lead well. To guide other members in, in how we should live in service of Jesus Christ our Lord. Bless the deacons as they encourage members to, to generosity and hospitality. That the communion of the saints in this place would be deep and rich. We pray, Father, for all the members of this congregation, that they would care for one another. That they would also care for those roundabout. That through their lives, their actions, their words, they might testify to your great love and faithfulness. We pray, Father, for, for members and guests of our congregation they might wish to become better acquainted with us, to join us in all that we do. We pray, Father, that you would bless the community in which we live. Many of our neighbors might come to hear the good news, might be able to believe it for themselves. We pray the Holy Spirit would work in all of our hearts helping us to overcome doubts, helping to answer our questions, that we might live all the more convinced of the truths proclaimed to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I invite you to rise, if you're able, that we might now sing in closing from hymn 82, the stanzas one and three.
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.